If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg, and my friends, Today's episode is one you are going to want to hear. We are talking about transitioning to a four-day work week with Pam Orr. Now, let's face it, a lot has been written about the four-day work week over the last decade, but it goes back much further than that. The four-day work week is a dream that society has been toying with for almost a hundred years. And in some places, like some European countries and also some companies, some large companies, I should say, they've really experimented with the four-day work week. One of the neat things about the nonprofit sector is we also can be the innovation sector. We are small, often, and nimble, and risk takers. So we can try things and go, hey, what's the worst that happens if it doesn't work out? We'll just have to go back to a five-day work week. So I was thrilled when podcast listener Pam Orr reached out to me, and I ended up learning that they have a four-day work week through that conversation. And I was like, oh my gosh, Pam, we've got to get you on the podcast because I know so many people who say, I'd love to have a four-day work week. And by the way, most of these people are executive directors. And the great thing about being an executive director is you can drive that sort of change. So whether you're an executive director or you just maybe want to know more about this so you can have conversations with your own executive director, hey, this is going to be a great episode for you. Now, Pam is currently the executive director at Fellowship Housing in Illinois. She has been leading the organization for about six years, and during her tenure as its leader, she has doubled the number of people that it serves and grown the budget by almost 50%. She has over 15 years of nonprofit leadership experience, and I am so excited that she is joining us today to talk about really transitioning to the four-day work week in her organization. Hey, Pam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Well, I am thrilled that you're here, and I thought a good place for us to start this conversation would be that you, in the course of a pretty short period of time, about five years, your organization has gone from really high turnover to being a talent magnet. 
Yeah, you know, that sounds pretty wonderful. And it's been a really interesting journey. Like you said, about five years ago, my board challenged me and said, you know, Pam, you really ought to look at this turnover that's costing the organization and it's just impeding what we would like to be doing. So I did just that. We took a look at a variety of different things, not just the four-day work week. That actually came a little bit later. We looked first at, we had a lot of part-time positions, even the positions that were working directly with our clients, with our single moms. And so there was a lot of turnover, not as much buy-in. We changed very quickly to all full-time positions, which then enabled us to add some benefits for all of our employees, like health insurance and life insurance and a simple IRA, those kind of things, which again, really shifted it from this, just a part-time gig to more of a career track. And then we started really pushing on the salaries that we were paying, you know, in the social sector, which is primarily a female dominant sector. Even when you look at the salary surveys, the pay was just ridiculously low. And so what we were finding, we served single moms, but we could not hire single moms. The only people we could hire were individuals who had a spouse that was making enough money to support the family. And we felt like this, I felt like this was just wrong. So we started pushing that. So real quick, before we jump in then and transition over to the four-day work week, let's talk about both of those items, because I think that's so critically important. So as you started to consolidate these part-time positions into full-time positions, did you find that your part-time people were transitioning into full-time positions, or did you end up needing to let go of most of the part-time people because part-time just did not work within their life? Yeah, the interesting thing was that was the one place that the high turnover was helping us because what we just did is as our part-timers left, we didn't replace them with part-time positions. We folded them into a full-time position. So we never had to let go any of the really good employees that we had. It was just a natural progression. What an elegant solution, Pam. I love, love that solution. Also, just want to commend you on getting salaries up. I just finished an interim engagement where we where we ended up doing something really similar where hey, I kind of had to go to the board and just say, look, yeah, and, and the board was fully supportive. Let me be clear, fully supportive. But, you know, it's just like, look, you know, we've got to pay closer to a living wage. As you said, I mean, this is a sector that primarily has employed women. And as a result, that misogyny and that sexism has crept into the wages within the sector as well. Absolutely. And it just made no sense to me that in a field where such good work is being done, there's also, as you know, this idea that we should try to get our overhead costs as low as we can. And so there's a lot of conversations that not only came with the board, but also with donors to explain, hey, this is why we're doing this. And trust me, this will lead to better outcomes and this will be good for the organization It is a good use of your money. Nice. And did you get much pushback from donors of the board about that? None from the board and very little from donors. Initially, there would be a comment, you know, but once the conversation, once we sat down and explained why we were doing what we were doing, and once they realized the craziness of us not being able to hire single moms when we're serving single moms, they quickly got on board. So we had very little to no pushback. That's awesome. That's awesome. So Obviously, you worked to get wages up. You worked to consolidate positions so that you could provide benefits. Um, Anything else before you started to look at a four-day work week? I don't think so. I think those were the main things that came up that we looked at, you know, initially. 
So how long ago did you first start to consider, hey, maybe we should do a four-day work week? So it wasn't too long after we started making these changes. I would, so we actually, it would be in the summer of 2019. Actually, it was in the spring of 2019. We started just pushing on the question, okay, we've done these things. What else, what else can we do for our team? Your staff is your most valuable asset. What do they value? We couldn't be the highest paid. We could certainly pay better, but we couldn't be the highest paid. And the thing that came to mind, and as we talked about it as a team, was time. We have all women. It just happens to work out that it worked for us. And right now, all of them are moms. And so when we talk about what do they value the most, it was the ability to have more time with their families. It was the ability to have space to get things done so that when their families are together in the evenings or on the weekends, they could be fully present. And so that's what really led me to exploring this idea of a four-day work week. And to be clear, it wasn't a four 12-hour day work week. That wouldn't work for our families either. It was a four, roughly eight-hour, four days that were eight hours each day. So it was a 32-hour week we were exploring. So I was going to ask, did you do four 10s, four 11s? What did you do? So you did four eight-hour days for a 32-hour week, still calling it full-time and still paying benefits. Yes, that is correct. And the way that we teed that up with our team is I sat down, we sat down at a staff meeting, I can still picture it. And I said, you guys, I've got an idea. And I think it's a pretty cool idea, but I don't know if it's going to work. So I laid it out. I said, I would love to try a four-day work week. And there was skepticism because they thought it was going to be that four 10-hour day work week, which none of them wanted. And I said, okay, let's look at it this way. I'd love to try four days, eight-hour days. Your pay is not going to change. However, neither is your job description. So what we're going to do is over the summer, let's try an experiment. Let's do four four-day weeks. Let's just jump right on into it. And my challenge to you is, are there efficiencies we can work into our workday? Can we be more productive so that you gain an additional day on your weekend? And it was a challenge laid out. I also said, you know, we're going to have touch points along the way. So at the end of each month, we're going to sit down, we're going to say what's working, what's not working. This isn't going to be a surprise. When we get to the end of this experiment, we're going to all know whether or not this is working and we'll all be either on board to go forward with it or we'll all be on board to say this just isn't working. Let's go back to the five-day work week. So I'm curious to know what are some of the things that you all experimented with that summer that worked? And of course, I'm going to ask you the flip side as well, what didn't work, but what are some of those things that you experimented with that worked that caused greater efficiency? You know, it really was on an individual basis. I mean, we're <laughs> we're a staff of we're a staff that loves to be together. I'll just say that. And so when you're in the office, there's often a lot of chatting and we didn't want to kill all of that, but we also wanted to acknowledge that maybe there could be a little bit less and we could get a little more done. I did not give anything specific for them to try. It was simply, you take a look at your job. You own your job. I trust you to get your job done let's see how we can do this. So the one thing that we played around with a bit was, are we all in the office on the same four days? Or do we provide flexibility to say, you choose the four days, just let us know. So we have some consistency in knowing when you're going to be in the office. One of my core values is trust and flexibility. 
And so that really fit well with who we are as an organization. So honestly, when you say what didn't work, I I don't have anything to share with you, Dolph. It, it was an incredible success. And so I think I know how you're going to answer this, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because I'm dying for a confirmation. How did you all set it up? Does everyone work the same four days or does everyone choose which day they're going to get off? Everyone chooses which day they're going to get off. Wow. Okay. And we do ask them to make that consistent. It's not a week to week decision. It's too hard to plan and such. So, you know, we have most of us do a Monday through Thursday, but we have a fair number that do a Tuesday through Friday. And there's occasion where they'll say, hey, do you mind if I shift my day off this week? Absolutely. Heads up. But for the most part, they they named it and uh, it works really well. Early on when you're rolling out, did you say, hey, we all have to make sure we're in the office on a certain day? Like we'll have to be in the office on a Tuesday or a Thursday just so we can do group work that we need to do or no? Yeah, that's a great question. Absolutely. Wednesdays have always been our staff meeting days. We have a tradition where we all eat lunch together. We just, we come out of our offices, we sit at a common table and we do lunch together. That's kind of our community time. And so there was some concern of if we're splitting schedules. And so we claimed Wednesdays as the day that we're all in the office. It's a day we get to look each other in the face and, you know, remember that we're a team and that we're people, not just on a screen or what have you. And that's worked really well. Nice. And it sounds like you are an in-place employer. So like everyone's in the office to work or are there people working remotely as well? Yeah. You know, that's something that we implemented. I'm trying to remember timing wise with COVID and all of that. I think it came out of COVID actually, where we just said, okay, we learned some things here as we all did, right? As the nation did. And we started implementing work from home. So once an employee has been with us for a year, they have, they can take one day and work from home. And once they've been with us for three years, they can take two days. So it works pretty well. So we, in theory, anyone who's over three days works two from home, two in the office, and they've got that fifth day that's just theirs. And I have to share with you, in my head, I was doing the math wrong. I was like, okay, so three days in the office, two days from home, but I forgot. I forgot you're a four day a week, eight hour a day employer. I'm also really curious about that. And let me say, I think I understand it. But if you could maybe tell us a little bit more about the work from home, after one year, you get one day, after three years, it's up to two days from home. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think the reason that we, well, I know the reason that we opted to go that way is really twofold. One, we really take our culture and knowing each other, not just in the office, but knowing each other personally, we take that very seriously. And we were afraid if we had a new employee who started off the bat two and two, that there just wouldn't be that opportunity to really build into the team and to connect into the team. And then, of course, the second thing is you can do some training over Zoom. You can do some stuff over Zoom, but there's just something about being in person, learning the job, walking into somebody's office and asking a question that we really felt like that year was really important. I don't know why we chose three years. That's a fair question. I think, again, it was just right now it's seen as kind of earning it. Like, oh, I can't wait. I'm almost to my three years. And again, it's just, we know by three years, they should be very proficient in their job, proficient in their knowledge of the organization that going two days a week at home and two in the office really is doable and doesn't hurt the organization. And again, just to be clear, even from home, those are eight-hour days. They are eight-hour days, yes. 
but there's flexibility in that. Do you have, you know, does your son have a soccer game in the afternoon? Well, then figure that out. We've really worked hard at creating a culture that focuses on trust. I care less about the number of hours you're working and more about are you getting your job done? And I guess I was more asking, so when someone works from home, those aren't 10-hour days or 11-hour days. Okay, yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely not. And we discourage that. So I I was just talking to development director who just got promoted. And I said, my one, I think my biggest concern with promoting you, and I said very honestly, is you work a lot of evenings. And that concerns me as a supervisor that those working for you will see that as something that is expected. So we're working on that. You need to be able to shut off, be with your families. And we talk a lot about that in our culture. You just saw me put my hand over my heart. I love, love, love that you said that as someone is there as you were promoting that person. You know, I'm concerned. I don't want to reward what's not necessarily great behavior, working too much. And that's absolutely true. And it's a different mindset, you know, and especially when, you know, we have a lot of individuals that come from organizations that don't have this mindset. And I had one new employee say to me, is this for real? Like, are you for real? Not really trusting that what we were saying was true, that really we don't want you to work in the evenings. Really, we don't want you to answer emails. We don't want your email to be on your phone. And so what did you say to that employee when they're like, wait, Pam, is this for real? This seems like a trick. Yeah, I said, well, you can trust me on this and you can call us out on it. So I gave her permission right off the bat to say, if you see this, I want you to tell me because we really, it's an easy thing to slide into. And it may happen a time or two here or there in a busy season, but we certainly don't want it to be the norm. The other thing I heard that I think is worth underscoring is you also don't want team members to put their email on their phone. Yeah. And that's been a challenge. I obviously don't go around checking phones, but especially when they're on vacation, less about during the week, but when they're on vacation, the conversation that I have with those that report directly to me, and I encourage them to have with their direct reports as well, is take it off your phone. The temptation is too strong. And then it takes your mind away from vacation, right over to work, and you've lost that precious time that's for you and your family. I feel confident I've told this story before on the podcast, but I was doing an interim, gosh, maybe four years ago. And it was an organization that operated a 50,000 square foot building. And they had a director of facilities. So, you know, frankly, had a pretty big job. He'd been there over a decade. And he shared with me about a week before he was supposed to go on vacation. I asked him, okay, you know, who's going to be covering your email while you're gone? And he goes, oh, I always check my email when I'm on vacation. And I looked at him and I was like, really? You, you check your email on vacation, not on your way home from vacation, but on vacation. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I feel better if I could just check it every day and deal with anything that comes up. And so I said to him, well, I need you to not do that. And he looks at me dead serious and says, you need to know I'm going to. And I thought about it overnight, and I talked to him the next day, and I was like, I know at first you're going to be uncomfortable with this, but when you go on vacation, I'm going to have IT change your password. And when you return, we're going to give you your password back. So make sure you assign someone <laughs> to, to receive emails on your behalf if it's an emergency. Well, this person, Pam, came back from vacation, and he's like, I've been checking email for over 10 years on vacation. I forgot what it was like to not be responsible on vacation. Thank you. I'm doing this from now on. I was like, good for you. Good for you. That's fantastic. 
That was a bold leadership move, Dolph. Yeah, I will say one of the great things about being an interim is you can do that sort of thing. You know, as the permanent, you know, you're like, oh, well, this permanently damaged my relationship with the person. As the interim, I'm able to say, you know, I'm part-time and part of my job maybe is to jolt some people in the organization so that they have, a, frankly, a healthier, more productive relationship with their organization as an employee. And to me, like, if you're going on vacation but you're not disconnecting, you're going to come back, frankly, being just as worn out as when you left. Absolutely. I I couldn't agree more. That's interesting. I love that. And so I am guessing that this has not only helped you retain talent, but it's helped you be even more competitive in getting new employees and getting talent. Yeah, it definitely has. It's a great recruiting tool. I'll tell you one story, new employee that we're interviewing for a position we had open. We made her the offer. She said, okay, let me think about it. She accepted the job. And on her first day, she came into my office and she said, Pam, the place that I was working at counter offered. I said, interesting. And what did you say? And she said, what I said to them was, can you offer me a four day work week? And they laughed and they said, absolutely not. And she said, (laughs) bye-bye. So it really is quite, it's a retention tool. It's a recruiting tool. It's a help your employees be healthier tool. And I've read so much of the vitriol on LinkedIn and all of that, you know, people saying that we're lazy Americans or people don't want to work anymore. And I just push back and I say, actually, we're a better organization for it. We have not lost a beat. It has not cost the organization more money. And in fact, I think it's actually saved us money. I've not done the numbers and stuff, but in terms of retention and recruiting really good talent. It's made a huge difference. Absolutely. And of course, that's helped with your operations too, because, you know, programs operate better when you have better retention. Absolutely. Oh, for sure. Yes. I mean, the amount of energy it takes when you're rehiring and retraining and yeah, it it's not good. And the lost time, you know, so you're transitioning clients to another person and then they have to take time to build a relationship. It is also lost time for your programs. So I can hear in my head friends who are listening right now who are saying, well, you know, I bet Pam's organization is a big organization. I could maybe do that at a big organization, but mine is small. We couldn't do it at mine. So I'm curious, how big is your organization? When we implemented this experiment in 2019, we had 10 employees, 10 full-time employees. We have 12 now. And we're, again, about that time, we were about a $1.5 million organization. So we're small. And you said that at the beginning, I think that allows you some flexibility and some, some ability to be nimble and try something new. I would encourage anyone listening to just give it a try, run the experiment, see how it goes. And part of what I also love is you manage expectations. So you said, this is going to be an experiment. And you know, at the end of the summer, we're going to look at it. And you'll probably know ahead of time whether or not the experiment's working, but we're going to look and make a decision about whether or not to continue it. Absolutely. And that was key because what we didn't want to have happen and what could have easily happened is it didn't work out. And it didn't work out for the organization. I mean, the employees were loving it, but it didn't work out for the organization. We get to the end and we pull it back. That would have been very damaging I think, to the trust between the employee and and myself and the organization. So they were right in with me. We were evaluating the program together. We were having regular meetings and conversations. Is this working? Is this not working? So there would have been no surprise at the end. Yes, yes. Well, Pam, with 
just a little bit of time left. I hate to switch gears, but I've got to go to the off the map question, which in this case, I'm really just going to flip the page and it's the other side of the map. So when I was doing some research to be able to welcome you onto the podcast, I checked out your LinkedIn profile and, you know, LinkedIn will often say, oh, you're looking at this person's profile. Here's some people who they may know. You may want to look at their profiles as well. And so the top one was the person who's your development director. I'm like, eh, let me click on there and just see how long the development director's been there. And two things I was struck by, the person who is your development director has been at your organization for, I want to say, five, six, or seven years. And the second thing is you've grown your own development director. They've kind of worked their way up from like an events person to a grant person to a development person now to your development director. And so I was hoping that you would kind of share your secrets to growing a development director because I know a lot of executive directors really struggle with that piece. You know, I don't know that I have any specific insight or wisdom to the development director role. I think my philosophy in hiring key individuals for an organization all stem around, have you created a culture where somebody really wants to work and somebody feels seen and valued? And when you have an employee who is rocking it in one job, what's the next step for her? And so we were small and it's hard to say, here's your growth track when you're small, but it's always giving them more, challenging them, valuing them for what they bring. So Courtney in this situation, she's just a rock star and I've not found her capacity yet in terms of giving her something new, letting her try something new. So specifically with development director, I honestly think, and this is something I had to do when the board challenged me with our turnover. I think I had to look at myself and what the organization was providing to our team first. And that's what the board was challenging me to do. It's easy to blame, you know, they just don't want to stick around anymore. They're just, you know, employees these days, they just move on. And I think there's that old saying that they leave a supervisor, they come to a job, they leave a supervisor. I don't know. I think they leave a culture. That's really what I think it is. And that can be the supervisor. So my encouragement would be, man, create a culture, create a place to work that nobody wants to leave. Cause then you have, and, and then you're faced with the other problem of if you have an employee, you have to let go that that's a whole nother problem, but create a place that whether it's a development director, operations manager, whoever it is that they don't want to leave. And then I do wonder if with a development director coming in, one of the things about growing the development director up through the organization is she has developed and grown a passion for what we do. And so stepping into the development director role is a natural fit. It doesn't feel overwhelming. She's inviting potential donors into an experience or into something really cool that she believes in. So those two things, that passion and that culture, those are powerful. I don't know if that's helpful or not. That is very, very helpful. And one of the things you've mentioned is something I hear a lot. You know, so you mentioned so often we'll just kind of throw our hands up in the air and give up and say, well, people just don't want to stick around anymore. And I often hear that from executive directors who will say, you know, the average tenure for a development person is 18 months. You know, I'm not even going to try that hard to keep one. But then I also know there's people like you and other executive directors, you know, who've had the same development director or same development person for five, six, seven years. So I know it's possible. And so that's why I always like to ask that question when I see it's happened. I don't know if that's a secret sauce or what, but that's, that's been my philosophy. I love that. And the key words I took away are ensuring every employee feels seen, heard, and supported. 
absolutely. Don't we all want that? I want that, you know, wherever, whatever space I'm in. So if we can turn around and give that to our employees, you know, as executive directors, we can't abdicate culture. We can't abdicate that. We've got to be active in that. We've got to grow it, build it, protect it. And I know that's shifted off of our four-day work week, but that's a sub part of just creating a culture where they don't want to leave. Yeah, I love that. And so, Pam, obviously I'm about to share the URL, but if you could maybe share a little bit with our friends who are listening what your organization does, what Fellowship Housing does. Absolutely. Well, I jokingly tell everyone that we're in the business of teaching moms to fish. And what I mean by that is we are empowering them to build a new legacy for their children. And we do that by providing housing and financial literacy training and educational opportunities for their children. It is incredible work that we get to be a part of. The moms are incredible, and that's why it works. The moms do the hard work. We just provide the space. Thank you. And friends, if you want to find out more about Pam or about Fellowship Housing, you can go to fhcmoms.org. And while you are there, you can hear and read stories of incredible single moms who are overcoming adversity to build a new legacy for their families. You can also learn more about what Fellowship Housing does so that you can offer resources to single moms in your life. And finally, the other reason I really think you should go is they are currently having a campaign. They're calling it their Hope Builder campaign, which is their monthly donor program. So if you have a monthly donor program or are thinking about starting one, make sure you go to fhcmoms.org and check out what they're doing. You might get some really good ideas. You also might be inspired to you know become a monthly contributor, but at a minimum, I know you're going to get some good ideas. Pam, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Dolph. All right, friends, you know what I'm about to do. First of all, I'm going to say if you found this episode helpful or if you would really like a four-day work week at your organization, why don't you circulate this around? If you're not the executive director, send it to the executive director. If you are the ED, send it to the board chair and say, hey, let's talk about this. Let's talk about becoming the kind of organization that employees don't want to leave. So that's the first thing. Second, if you really found this episode helpful, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your streaming app of choice. And third... If you liked this episode, you should listen to two more. One is one that Lexi and I did. It's episode 288, Unlimited PTO in Your Organization. Lexi and I experimented with that last year, and we now have it as a permanent policy of just having unlimited PTO. Also check out episode 265, Becoming a Competitive and Equitable Employer with Kevin Dean. You know, early in this conversation with Pam, we talked about the importance of not just paying competitively, but paying equitably. And we did a deep dive with Kevin Dean to talk about just that. That, my friends, is our show for the week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help you and your nonprofit thrive. And you know, I never really enjoyed doing the disclaimer until I started to have ChatGPT do them for me. So this time around, I asked ChatGPT to do my disclaimer in the style of Paul Harvey. And by the way, I think Paul Harvey's probably not been on the air in about 25 or 30 years. So I realize a lot of people are like, who is Paul Harvey? But anyway, well, folks, now it's time for our little chat 
the one that reminds us of the hats we don't wear. You see, despite my many talents, I am neither an accountant nor an attorney. As shocking as it may be, I can't help you dodge your taxes or finesse your way around the law. And to add another jolt, neither I nor this consulting practice offer tax, legal, or accounting advice. That's right, folks. We're more in the business of thought, dialogue, and inspiration rather than the nitty-gritty of legal jargon or the cold, hard numbers of accounting. Page two. Now, this podcast, it's like a museum. It's filled with ideas, concepts, stories, and other things for you to pursue and ponder for your enlightenment, your entertainment, your edification. But just as you wouldn't use a painting as a roadmap, don't rely on this podcast for tax, legal, or accounting advice. It is strictly informational, my friends, and not a GPS for navigating the labyrinth of laws and ledgers. Should the day come when you need a guide in that thorny wilderness, I encourage you to seek out a true professional, not a dabbler or a dilettante. No, find yourself a licensed, qualified professional right in your area. They'll be the ones with the decoder rings and the compasses ready to lead you through those treacherous tax and legal terrains.